Hi everyone, welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast. I'm your host Spencer Lodge and it's my job to make the time you're about to give me as valuable as possible. My job here is to share content I've made across all of my endeavors and ventures as an entrepreneur and bring you stories, lessons and insights from my conversations with some great achievers in business and personal development. I'm an author, chairman of the Blue Sky Thinking Group here in Dubai and a really passionate content creator. Also on my own creative journey and with so much going on, this show is a way for me to funnel out value from all the work my team and I are doing so that we can share it with our audiences online in an easy audio format. For those that attend my seminars or follow me on social media, this is just some extra material to get stuck into on your own journey in business, sales, personal development or whatever aspect you're working on in improving your life. In today's episode, I'll be doing that by sharing an interview I did with Raza Jaffa, which was recorded a couple of weeks ago here in Dubai. Raza, where do I start with Raza? What a man. I'm so inspired by him, you wouldn't believe. He is in his 50s. He has built a successful um, business, you know, along with other achievements and accomplishments, you know. CEO of the Palazzo Versace, he's just the, the head of so many, he's a serial entrepreneur, built so many companies and been so successful. And I'm talking about really successful. But what's even more impressive is the work that he does with the Global Sustainability Network that he helped to create. And you're really you're really in for a treat on this interview. You really are, because Raza has got just He's, he's he's just one of those guys he's he, he's persuasive he is infectious he is got an energy about him that i just love he's incredibly humble like you wouldn't believe for someone who does what he does and he he really opened up and shared with me what he felt about child slave labor and what he was going to do about it um with the people that he works with and the commitment he had to it um, I can't tell you how excited I am to share this interview with you. I promise you this is probably it's probably the best one yet for me and hopefully it will be for you too. Now the interview lasts around about 45 minutes. Um, there, there's just so many reasons I enjoyed it. And, and do you know what? I'm not even going to give you it all away. I'm going to let you listen to it because hopefully you'll get the same out of it as I did and uh, you'll be feeling pretty good and pretty amazed at the end of this interview. So if you're ready to get stuck in, I really hope you enjoy my interview with the amazing, incredible and hugely inspiring Raza Jaffa. Remember at the end of the interview, I'll be back to tell you more about how the interview took place, what I've learned and applied and share a few extra notes about the content. So, first of all, thank you very much for coming and joining me on the show, Rasa. Thank you for having me. It, I've got to know you over recent time and the, the kind, giving and super kind of positive person that you are. But for many people out there, they might have heard of your name, but they might not know who you are and what you stand for and what you do for the community. So if I can break this interview down into two specific areas, okay, first of all, to learn about you, the person, and secondly, to learn about the fantastic work that you do with the GSM. Would that be okay? Thank you so much. I'd love to talk about it. Okay, cool. So you're a few years older than me, but not many years older than me. So it's interesting to know our, our kind of ages are similar. When you go back to, to being a kid and remembering your earliest memories of inspiration and and kind of uh, the things that motivated you as a young person. Can, can you go back that far and think about those types of things? Uh, yeah, I, looking back, I'm, I'm 53 now, so I'm born in 65. So we went through a childhood which included moving around quite a bit because I am born in Quetta in Pakistan. Uh, we moved around to Karachi. Then we moved to Bangladesh. And in 1971, uh, war, uh, we came back to West Pakistan, which is Pakistan, and uh, we ended up losing everything and started off from scratch. Uh, my father really worked very hard, and there was very little that we could afford uh, at that point, but we were generally very happy. I really don't remember my childhood uh, to be an unhappy one. I was very happy most of the time. I was into sports. And uh, I had an amazing relationship with my siblings at that time 
till today. And I'm also very lucky and blessed that my school friends from those days are still very closely in touch with me. Wow. Okay, that's interesting to hear. First of all, how big was the family? Brothers and sisters, how many? Uh, my parents had four of us, me and my brother, who were the younger two, mm -hmm. and my two sisters were older than us. Okay. And so your brother, you were, what was the age gap there? So we are all two <coughs> years apart. So my eldest sister is four years older than me, then it's two years older than me, then it's me and my brother's two years younger. And when you look at your, your background, uh, I would have assumed you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth, but clearly you weren't. You had a, a, a kind of humble upbringing. Is that fair? That is <coughs> true. That's true. My father uh, struggled a lot and uh, he had a very tough childhood, but then he had a couple of uh, incidences like losing everything during Bangladesh. But he really continued to work very hard. And that's one thing we learned from him. Uh, there's no shortcut in life other than working hard with dedication. I agree there. So going to Bangladesh, was your dad being an entrepreneur? Yeah, he was an entrepreneur. What did he do there? What was the business? His business had been air conditioning, and that's what I also did right in the beginning. So when I started off, I started off uh, with $200, which is probably today's worth $80, but uh, it was 10,000 rupees in those days. Uh -huh. And I made a mold for tissue box covers. And then I learned how to do screen printing, and I was printing the screen, doing screen printing and selling tissue box covers to Johnson & Johnson and other pharmaceutical companies. Then I got an opportunity to use a frame of an exhaust fan and make that into wall clocks. Uh, and then I sold those wall clocks to tile manufacturing companies for their annual gifts. And then slowly from there, I made a few other plastic products and uh, put up a plant uh, to make disposable plastic cups. And I was doing all of that while doing a bit of air conditioning. And by that time, I had turned 20. So I thought, this is a good time now. It's time to get married and, uh, you know, start a family. So At 20? I got married. People 20. wouldn't think about that nowadays, would they? In the way that back then we did, you know. No, I was in love, and uh, at <laughs> the age of eighteen, and uh, we decided time to get married. It's time to get married, so we started being together. And uh, but I still continued my education. Uh, I did my bachelor's in commerce as a part-time student, not because I was looking for a degree. It's just I couldn't understand accounts, mm -hmm. so I learned how to do accounting through a tutor who used to come and teach my wife and uh, then we appeared in the exams and did our bachelors of commerce that way when when you tell the story about the, the, the early parts of your kind of entrepreneurial journey you know how, how does one start thinking about plastic molding because for me being uneducated in that area I would say that requires big expensive machinery to create plastic molding devices all the big businesses in the world that you see started with little capital, mm -hmm. whether it's Microsoft, whether it's Facebook, or any other business that you look at it is, that is something today, didn't really start from inheritance from dad and then started a business with a few billion dollars. Uh, these are all startups. Most of my friends start, tell me the stories. They started the business with 50,000 pounds, 10,000 pounds, and their businesses were worth several billion dollars so so I totally understand the businesses uh, don't really require huge capital require serious thinking through uh, a good business plan a good execution strategy and definitely there's always investment looking for such businesses do you think that you were um stronger in one area than another I mean you and I spoke before and you said at the end of the day there's a salesman in me yeah do you feel that that was an area that you excelled at when you were starting to build smaller businesses at the beginning I I think so I think that I was quite sincere in communication I would not say something I not fully believe in and so I you have a choice to sell products. What product you choose should be the one that you could totally trust and would fully believe in. So when you're talking, you're talking with passion. Whether you're talking about uh, 
non-profit issues, mm-hmm. when you're talking about fighting modern-day slavery, mm-hmm. or you're talking about selling the best chiller that you can produce. And you can really convince people that these are the reasons. You have a choice to use rem- material. You have the use to use which choice to use which compressor is the best. And you've chosen the best possible, and that's why you think this is the best product for the best price. Mm. Now, did you have a, a, a steady rise on that ladder to success, or did you have a few big falls along the way? So there's no such thing as a steady rise to any <laughs> success ever. <laughs> there's always bumpy roads to success. And uh, that's what you really need to watch, that nothing should really deter you from your destination as long as you believe in it. So, yeah, we had serious bumpy rides. I grew up in Pakistan. It's It's seen changes of governments uh, like weather. So, you know, we would have mm. hope in uh, our president uh, at one point that, you know, turning around the country and then unfortunately air explosion and he we lose him. And then we have democracy come in with Benazir Bhutto and then we... Uh, had her ousted out, and then we had Nawaz Sharif, and then this repeated twice. Then we had President Musharraf. So, no, there was no stability. Every time we make a strategy, it went out of the window very quickly, and we had to be really reactive. But flexibility, persistency, hard work, I think that pays off in the long run. They're, they're easy things to say, but s- most small businesses and young entrepreneurs uh, end up, in most cases, failing. Um, I look at it a lot of the time, and I see them not as failing. I see them as sometimes giving up, yeah. just not being able to kind exactly. of last the course. Um, it, it all becomes either too much for them, they get too much anxiety, they, they feel overwhelmed with the responsibility. Do you notice that and agree? That Absolutely. I fully agree with you. There's no such thing as failing. Failing is when you throw the towel and you say, I give up. I can't take this anymore. Uh, the other, I would look at it, learning. If you cannot stop learning and keep trying, I think that's what you're getting an opportunity. I mean, today, probably I can tell you more about what not to do than tell you what to do. <laughs> so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Do you, do you have a lot of people coming to you for, for pearls of wisdom and advice on the things that they should do? Are you inundated with people asking for an hour of your time just to brainstorm where they are? Or is that something when you, when you do have those types of requests that you, because of remembering when you were young and you were learning, that you embrace? I, I, I enjoy sharing my experiences and also enjoy guiding uh, whoever I can But there's a selfish motive to that because I get to learn a lot. I get to see what people are thinking today because I'm really amazed at what people think today and how they are thinking. I was never that advanced at their age most of the time. Mm -hmm. Most of the time I see that, wow, how can they reach so far so fast? And uh, technology helps, communication helps, and uh, people speak better than... I did at that point, and they have much better network than we had at that time. So I really enjoy it. Do you do you em- embrace technology nowadays, or do you do you still resist it no. as people from our generation sometimes a little bit do? So people from our generation had a character in cartoons called Inspector Gadget. <laughs> that was my nickname <laughs> in those days. I, <laughs> I was known as <laughs> Inspector Gadget. So I would have. Uh, for air conditioning, I would be using the ultrasonic distance meter just to measure the walls. And I used to, I did advanced engineering, engineering, uh, advanced engineering technology and computer sciences. So I would do my software programming in BASIC and uh, Fortran. Uh, so I would really be ahead in the technology. And my company in Pakistan at that point was the only company that did entire uh, air conditioning designing uh, on computers using AutoCAD, uh, we were using, uh, you know, heat load calculations from carrier softwares. And How long ago was that? That was uh, when I was about 20, so about 33 years ago. Okay, so that was happening then. So you were embracing it as a young person. As a young person and even today. So today, I think day after tomorrow, I'll get my new Samsung watch, which is the Galaxy watch. It's no longer gear, so <laughs> I should be getting that soon. And do you... 
do you find that that when you look at social media and the role that it plays in the business community nowadays do you think that social media is something that you've kind of taken on and you and you kind of really envelop into everything that you do or are you the guy that sits there spending time messaging on whatsapp for hours and hours i really don't understand social media so clearly so that is i'm still the whatsapp person and wants to, so but the only thing is that whatever i use which is like a lot of people went through the ages when we were using calculator uh, and there were scientific calculators as well uh, i could really use my calculator like a computer uh, when they came out with the uh, digital diaries the cashier digital diary with uh, lots of numbers and all that that had a lot of functions i realized most of the people didn't know how to use mm-hmm. same is the case you know when i started using whatsapp I think I use my WhatsApp very well. <laughs> <laughs> God, do you remember those devices? There was this thing called what was the Scion, wasn't it? That yeah. thing. Oh, it was amazing when that came out. There was another thing that Texas Instruments had. I can't remember what that yeah, was. Yeah, the yeah. gold thing. Yeah. But those things, when they were they were happening, they were like the step ahead of the calculator. We were like, this is the gadget. This Palm the Pilots as well. Palm Pilots. Yeah, oh. yeah. That was really cool to have at one time. I went to a meeting the other day, and somebody literally got out a day-to-page paper diary on his desk and I was like wow you've got a diary and he's like I can't get out of that space I still like to write my meetings in my diary have a highlighter pen when they've been attended and be able to look back and for me when I was younger it was the, the first few weeks of the year that the paper diary was always lovely wasn't it it would have the have the map of the world on the inside cover and the, you'd have it all clean and immaculate that was the gift everybody shared <laughs> corporate gifts yeah, yeah which sounds... company had the best diary they yeah yeah <laughs> I worked in the insurance industry and all of the insurance companies would be out there in December giving out. That. That's true. <laughs> so you built businesses, you became successful, you've always remained incredibly humble. Some of the characteristics that people that have a, a, a fast route to success uh, end up displaying sometimes by wearing their wealth or sometimes becoming arrogant and thinking they're better than others that that exists out there on the planet has never seemed to impact you in any way and for me that comes from a from from knowing the little that I do about you from this real humble character that has got a much bigger purpose than entrepreneurship and that is obviously GSN which I want to talk to you about right now tell me First of all, how on earth did it, all of this come about? Where was it? Where was it from you emotionally, and where did it come from practically? So the thing that I want to correct is I still don't consider myself successful because I'm still cleaning up a lot of the mess that I keep creating in every business. So, so I think it's there. You a go humble process. again. <laughs> it's going to take time. Uh, I I really believe. And when we go back, I talked about the businesses I started or at least the efforts and ventures I did. But at the same time, at the age of 18, I was quite conscious of the fact that I need to do something for community. I had nothing major to give other than something like blood. Each Mm -hmm. one of us had blood. So I believe giving is an attitude and not a privilege. Because a lot of people say, you know what, I'm just waiting to do this and then I want to spend a lot of my time. Well... My friend, you have an opportunity today to just smile at somebody, to just listen to somebody. It doesn't require anything other than your care. So giving is truly an attitude, uh, not a privilege. So it started from there. And it included uh, using my business knowledge, which was air conditioning, to help a blood foundation called Fatmi Blood Foundation in Pakistan. They were saving blood. We had a capacity of 500 pints of blood only, which uh, was being put in normal chest freezers. And because I was in air conditioning, I took some equipment of uh, old ships and put together a very reliable cold storage within their facility, increasing the capacity to 10,000 pints of blood. Ah. That allowed us to do blood separation get more blood regularly because we would have a lot of people wanting to donate blood but we didn't have capacity to store so whenever there was an emergency we used to have lines of people standing up trying to donate 
but then nobody would come and donate blood on a regular basis. So we started treating hemophilic and thalassemic patients because we could separate the blood platelets. And then I realized that, you know, it doesn't work only with the capacity. We should use our network. So we, with all our efforts, got the president of Pakistan in those days to come and support this foundation. And then we realized that, you know, there is a celebrity power. So we got a very famous celebrity uh, named Dilip Kumar. Anybody from Indian community would know him. He was really a legend. And we got him to come in and support the foundation. So we were quite active in foundation. And then I started to help other organizations which were uh, looking at kidney centers or burn victims and burn units, etc. So my attitude had been to find the champions doing great job in philanthropy and just quietly support them and use my business acumen and my network to support them whichever way possible. Later on, I got a little bit of financial strength where I could also support them financially with my network and my business acumen uh, and try to help nonprofits be more efficient. Slowly and gradually, I got exposed to this beautiful group in the US called the Global Philanthropist Circle which was founded by David Rockefeller and his daughter. And that really exposed us, exposed me to more than 63 families were part of that circle at that time. And I was very privileged to be invited to join them. And we started having a network of people we learned a lot from because I could see people taking big issues like malaria, like polio, like uh, other AIDS and uh, big issues uh, and dealing with it. I also got exposed to triple bottom line, uh, which is today better known as sustainable economic development. For those of us who don't know triple bottom line, it's looking at every business from economic, social, and environmental impact point of view. And uh, that's where we continued. So if there's anything you want to ask in between, please feel free, yeah, otherwise well, I will continue. No, so, please just keep talking about it. All right. So uh, when I was looking at triple bottom line, I take things quite literally. Uh, sounds very good, but I want to say, okay, so bottom line means numbers. So accounts, I can see the numbers. Environmental impact, I could understand, we could get quite close to understanding the environmental impact because in those days, carbon credits became more popular, so we could evaluate our environmental impact. But what I could not get a hold of was how do I put dollars and cents value to the social impact? So I worked with a lot of organizations, and I must thank organizations like Ernst & Young and uh, the others who helped me. And uh, I spent about two years trying to find dollars and cents value to social impact, and I failed. And I accepted my failure, and I said, okay, I failed, but I didn't give up. When was that? Just put, put some timelines uh, in. I think this was 2009. Okay. 2009, somewhere around 2009. Uh, because I was exposed to a triple bottom line more like in 2007-ish, mm -hmm. so I think it's 2009-10. And when I understood that part, I realized that let's look at it the other way around. I don't see any negative impact of a business socially because businesses create jobs that gives opportunity for people to take care of their children, that takes uh, uh, the capability for people to take care of their health. Mm -hmm. So I can't see really negative impact till I started to understand human exploitation by businesses. And that gave me uh, a cue into looking into slavery and that's how I discovered how much slavery exists in our businesses, which we don't even think about. If you look at your supply chain, I would say there's more than 80% chances you are funding slavery because we don't really care who's picking up, uh, who's doing the cotton picking for us. We don't know what kind of stitching is being done. Are we buying a special deal by some company at one dollar or two dollar for a t-shirt where we have enslaved laborers 
the companies don't come out saying we hire enslaved labor. But what they do is say, okay, I am going to give you 67 cents for this T-shirt because if I make it in Europe, it's going to cost five euros because I have to worry about my environment. I have to pay people right money. I have to take care of the education. But you guys in a developing world don't have to do that. So it doesn't matter. Squeeze these people. Don't give them the money. Don't give them the food. Don't let them have nutrition. Just give me another cent lesser. And that's how we're getting the good deals in our retail products because we're not looking at who's doing the mining for the minerals that are used in our iPhone. And are these people uh, being paid or are they enslaved? I know there are materials that are used in cosmetic products. Definitely a lot of children are enslaved in that market. So there are many areas that I realize that businesses are involved with human exploitation. And the business owners turn a blind eye to it because it's easier to than to take the problem on or be more responsible. So if you don't think about a problem, you don't think there is a problem. Mm -hmm. When there was racial discrimination accepted worldwide, it was okay to put a signboard saying dogs and blacks not allowed. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that long ago. Mm -hmm. So socially, there was nothing wrong with it. But the minute people realize that is unacceptable, we started, nobody can dare talk like that anymore, right? I think we need to make slavery unacceptable. We want to, we want to make human exploitation unacceptable. And for that, we need, all need to play a very important role in understanding what is slavery. So that, uh, hold on a minute. For people that, people that may not understand so much about this, can you give me an idea of the scale of this, how, how big it is? Sure. So what I'm uh, going to talk about how I moved on after discovering human exploitation will cover this part. Okay. Once I learned about this, I had started to go deeper into it. And a very dear friend of mine, who at that point I had just met, was talking about uh, child sex slavery. His daughter, who did some sabbatical in an orphanage, got exposed to child sex slavery. He was a man with golden heart, really passionate, very successful. His name is Andrew Forrest from Australia, a lovely guy. He was really passionate about fighting child sex slavery. We had a lot of talk about triple bottom line, child sex slavery, and we started to look into the bigger picture. I took him with me to meet the Global Philanthropist Circle Group in the U.S. And uh, we met with other people. I used my network, which includes uh, a very dear friend of mine, uh, Mr. Mo Ibrahim, who does amazing work for Africa, uh, who helped us with giving all his intellectual property because he launches the Africa Transparency Index to help us create an index to understand the landscape of this problem. So this is the answer to your question. And we launched the first global slavery index under WalkFree, which was founded by my friend, Andrew Forrest. And we continued the effort. And after understanding and ranking 160 countries, we realized there's about 45 million people in slavery today. So the magnitude is huge. And this figure is something that we could comfortably come up with. But in reality, it's more than that. 45 million. So the population of a country. That's right. Many countries. Some large countries, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's colossal. It, does it ever seem, when you say that number out loud, does it ever seem just such an overwhelming mission to be on? I think once we move together, the power of uniting to take up a cause is tremendous. And I am very positive and very optimistic that the way to deal with problems worldwide is for good people with good hearts and capability to come together. Normally you hear about mafia and organized crime. But if we work on organized good, we can move mountains. And I really believe that we need to do something about it. So when, once we launched the 
global slavery index, we realized we need to do something about it and we managed to bring together with the efforts of all our friends the uh, faith leaders in one room. And it all started with getting a fatwa against slavery, which my very dear friend and colleague Amal worked relentlessly in Al-Azhar Institute in Cairo. Mm-hmm. And we managed to convince Al-Azhar to issue the first ever fatwa against slavery, which my friend Andrew Forrest flew in with me to collect together from uh, Egypt. And from there, we went up to the Church of England. We met with Archbishop Justin Welby, who invited us for breakfast the other day. He totally supported and endorsed the subject, flew out to the Vatican, got the support of the Vatican and the Pope. And we started on this mission And by the end of that year, like one full calendar year from getting the fatwa, we got all faith leaders, Pope Francis, Grand Imam, Grand Ayatollah, uh, and uh, Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, all together on one platform at the Vatican, 2nd December 2014, and signed a joint declaration against slavery, which eventually was taken to United Nations, and with the, again, effort of all people relevant from the Vatican, from Kevin Highland, who is the commissioner of uh, trafficking in UK, and many others, this agenda of ending slavery was included in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which are 17 goals. And everything that I had worked on for the last 15 years, or maybe 12 years, was put into goal number eight, which included triple bottom line, so sustainable economic development, job creation and youth unemployment issues, and ending modern-day slavery. And that mission, after it was included, we decided the signatories of this pact includes 193 countries committing to achieve that by 2030, 17 goals. We're going to take up one goal. This is goal number eight. Create a group worldwide, which will include the faith, the businesses, the media, the non-profits, and the governments to all come together and achieve goal eight together. Now we are including academia as well. Hence, we created Global Sustainability Network in December 2015. And since then, we've been working uh, relentlessly on trying to achieve goal eight in any way possible, providing a platform for people involved with ending modern-day slavery, human trafficking, and all subjects related to goal eight. We meet three. Uh, we meet four times a year, every three months. Once in the Vatican, once in Church of England or House of Lords, once in the United Nations headquarters, generally around the uh, UN General Assembly, and once in Dubai. So that's where we are with GSN now. Wow. Wow. That's... I had another question for you, but I think you might have answered it. Let me just think about this for a second, because I, I listened to that, and when you first started to explain it, all I, all I think is, that is so big. You know, you shout 45 million, and it's just such a big thing to try and accomplish. And then you tell me what you've told me. We're, we're both of a similar age. Do you honestly believe that this can be solved in our lifetimes? Yes, I'm 100% convinced that this is something it's going to have a snowball effect. We started off with 18 members who were very influential. And when I say influential, my measurement of influence does not come from money. Uh, My measure of influence comes from the commitment. I keep talking about the difference between involvement and commitment. So commitment is where I feel as influential. Uh, We have got, within three years, 1,100 members. I can very confidently tell you that there could not be anybody on this planet which is not on the reach of the GSN member with a distance of just one person. So if you want this message to be passed on to anything, Uh, This is a real strong platform with committed people who want to achieve goal eight and want to help everybody achieve this. It's a remarkable objective. Now, 
you think within our lifetimes, what, 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 are, what are the biggest hurdles that you're going to face over the next, let's say, 12, 24 months, the biggest challenges that you'll think you'll find? Biggest challenges that I find is ego. Everybody has a huge ego, and ego is the only thing that's coming in the way of achieving goal eight and SDGs. Because everybody wants to go and say, wait a second, this should be named after me, and this should be the Raza Jaffa Foundation, and this should be the thing. No, no, I did this. No, I would go and raise my money, and no, this country should be ahead of... I mean, I don't understand the concept of entitlement of countries that they think that their population deserves more than some other country's population. Because that's exactly where the discrimination in humanity starts. So this entitlement needs to sort of be addressed. Uh, these egos need to be addressed. And I think ego is the biggest hurdle I see. How do you deal with that? I mean, it's a really important point. But how, how do you get people to, or, or governments to set that aside? Does, it, does, does dialogue and faith encourage that to happen? Or do you think that's one of those things that it will just exist forever because it's part of the human condition? Governments are the representatives of the population of the country. Technically. The reason I'm so hopeful is because the younger generation is just amazing. They are looking at equality. They are looking at being environmentally sensitive. They are really conscious generations coming. They don't want to do wrong things. Uh, they really believe that everybody has equal opportunity. So I'm very hopeful that the new generation, slowly and gradually, are not going to allow leaders to come on the stage uh, unless they really represent that generation. So this is really uh, the biggest hope I have. Talk to me about youth employment, mm -hmm. not necessarily globally, but across Asia and North Africa. There's high percentages of young people that are unemployed. Um, trying to get work has been a challenge for many people. Do you think that there's a remedy for that through old... I don't remember when we were young, a lot of people did an apprenticeship. You know, they went into a company, they did an apprenticeship because mum and dad said from the working class environment, get a trade behind you learn something and so at least you've got some skills that you can apply whether that be a plumber an electrician whatever it might be do you think that 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 kind of talk because we that's what you did you either went to university or you did an apprenticeship when we yeah. were younger from for me i remember that very clearly and so for those that haven't had the the, the good fortune of being able to go to university i don't maybe it's maybe different words are used maybe there's a different term for it nowadays maybe it's not called an apprenticeship but do you think there is, there is enough work that companies are doing in both the SME and the larger corporate sector and finding opportunities for young people that want to learn, that want to have a job to get a chance? So your question about the region, uh, Asia and North Africa, I would just say the problems are the same all over the world. Uh, we see that most of the developing world uh, are going to suffer the most in coming years if we don't prepare ourselves for it. We were, we, I was in Mexico uh, about six, seven weeks ago, and we were very clearly discussing 3.6% unemployment going up to 4% next year, and I think uh, we need to address these issues. These issues that, you know, cause a lot of other political tension. That's where the migration issues coming from, from building the wall. So if we are able to uh, provide jobs, decent jobs for people within their own countries, uh, nobody wants to leave home. Mm. Uh, and nobody wants to leave family. So I think that is something we need to address. But if you see the developing world, the biggest employer in developing world is agriculture sector. An agriculture sector was taking away jobs on daily basis is not a driverless car or machine learning or artificial intelligence. It is simply a tractor. One tractor takes away jobs of hundreds of people mm -hmm. in a farm. One harvester takes away a job of thousands of people in the village who would come together during harvesting season. 
So we need to see when this happens, when these people in the villages, mostly in the agriculture sector, they lose their jobs, they make their way to the cities. Cities does not have unlimited jobs, and that's where they get in the hands of exploiters, people who use them and uh, really abuse them. Mm. So I think that we need to address this issue, uh, and there is a gap. If our governments understand that our education system, like for example in South Asia, we churn out hundreds of thousands of people with the BA degrees, which is the Bachelor of Art, which gets them no job. Mm -hmm. So they become a taxi driver after getting a BA degree. It just takes them away from actually uh, doing something, learning some skills. So we need to go in the front and go to the employers and ask them, what kind of jobs do you see coming in the next five years, 10 years? Who are the kind of people you're employing? What is the minimum requirement that you have to hire these people? And then get our educators to produce generation that is needed in future. Not just keep giving them this education for the sake of education that, oh, my son, you have to get educated because you have to feed the family. And you go and borrow money and educate them for something that doesn't really need to have a job. Mm -hmm. That is what causes frustration. So we need to align our demand with our training and our strategy of the countries. So essentially, we've got to get the, the educators to talk way more to the employers and have a really fluid aspect of communication to what they're doing there's a lot of talk on social media that maybe you see or don't see where they say the the, the education system's broke yeah. um, you know people are learning skills that they're not going to use in in their real life and you know i remember pythagoras's theory and wondering whenever i was going to use that exactly. in my life did you ever use it <laughs> i i think you know when i talk to the youth on education I think education is about learning how to learn. So when you go to a university, the good thing about education is you actually learn how to learn. And if you learn how to learn, you will use that skill all your life because things are going to keep changing. And as long as you have learned how to be patient, how to sit down, listen to something or see something or get in the mode of learning, uh, that will help you all your life. That is a really interesting point you just made because I don't think people even think about that. The fact is, it's so simple. You've got to learn how to learn. Okay, if, if you look at the way that technology is enveloping everything that we do nowadays, I mean, we have a, a mutual friend, the, the fantastic Harvey and Saika with their, their uh, business, Searchy. So invested in the, the, the redeployment of strategy for recruitment by using artificial intelligence that we've spoken about. I, I look at that and I think, what would my kids need to go and learn to get, to get involved in that? Not necessarily the skill of coding and, un, and understanding AI, but becoming entrepreneurs in that type of area. And I often find that you know, my, my kids are going to university. My, my daughter, Taylor, she starts, she's 19, she starts in September. And what, what do you want to be? You know, what, what, when you get older, what do you want to be? And she said, oh, I don't know, but I love art. And so, so she's wrapped up in learning about the history of art and fine art. And that's, that's mm. the thing for her. My, and she, but she's incredibly competitive. Um, so that, that instinct within her, I think, is going to be, if I could draw more of that out of her, I think that would be really good for her in business. I then take my youngest, Katie, and she is 17, so she's got two years before university. She doesn't have a competitive bone in her body. She's happy for everybody to win, and she doesn't mind what she studies because she quite, quite enjoys going to school, and she's looking forward to going to university. And we'll find out at some stage in the future what she wants to be is how she thinks. When I, when I look at that and then I look at the need for, for studying so that you can apply yourself in the right type of industries, I think, you know, and this is predominantly UK-based because of where I'm from, that they, the, the universities really don't understand that. Like, they really don't understand it. Because it comes back to something that frustrates me about business. Uh, when you and I sat on your sofa uh, a couple of months back, you said to me, look, there's a salesman in me. 
and you know that I, I come from a sales perspective. I'm deeply frustrated why, why universities don't teach people how to sell. Like, because of how important it's probably been for your career and for my career and for so many others. And I look at that and I'm like, why can't that? Why is that? That's an easy fix. That's got to be an easy fix. But why can't they see that? Why can't they do that? Is that just too much bureaucracy? And if it is too much bureaucracy, is that the kind of thing that you face with all of the things that you do all the time? You said ego, but are you sucked into so much bureaucracy all the time that sometimes it can dent the will? I think the ego plays a big role in this. When you talk to a teacher, you can see the teacher is, some, is a profession that has always been respected. But never well remunerated. When they live in the society today, they realize, oh, well, all my neighbors who are business people and, uh, you know, the bankers and the investment bankers and tech people are extremely wealthy. And they've all moved out of this neighborhood. And I'm the one who's left behind and respected a lot in students, but these students change every year. So I got a new bunch of people who respect me. But in truth, the professors and the teachers are not remunerated properly and that builds up a bit of resentment. And I have seen across the board, all nationalities, a bit of a gap between teachers and the rest of the world because they feel like they're coming from a giving part of the world and then they are materialistic people. And these giving part of the world people are teaching the children how to survive in that materialistic world. So there's a big disconnect. We need to fix that for sure. I totally agree. Like example you gave of selling or negotiating or strategizing. Selling, you cannot get married if you did not know how to sell yourself properly. If you can't <laughs> sell your proposal, you'll be a bachelor all your life. You know, if you're going to talk about selling, if you have a proposal for a non-profit, no government's going to take your uh, you know, proposition seriously if you were not able to sell your point of view. So selling is not about going and selling insurances mm -hmm. uh, only. And selling is about selling what you believe in mm -hmm. so that more and more people uh, are with you on the same page. Every time we have a board meeting, you need to sell the whole budget. You need to sell the whole new investment idea. So I feel the universities are really disconnected with teaching the skills. And they come from the point of ego. Then last 300 years, we have been doing this and we have a great result. Well, last five years, you're not using the same phone. Ten years ago, you were really excited about the BlackBerry. right? So modern, the technology has changed so fast that you have not changed the education system fast enough for that. Maybe, maybe it's really difficult to keep up. You know, because it has technology has moved so quickly, maybe it is a big part of it is how on earth do you keep up? I mean, if you and I were running a school or a university and it was moving as quick as it was and we had curriculum that just had to be evolutionary on a on a almost semester by semester basis, it would be a, a big old challenge. So I'll, uh, as much as it's wrong, I think I'll, I, I'll accept that sometimes things can't move quite as quickly. Yeah, nothing is easy in life. Everything is difficult and needs attention and resources deployed on it. I mean, I can see these big buildings uh, and uh, billions of dollars of endowments funds of these universities. I think they can put it to a better use than real estate. You say nothing is easy, but just on a final note, you put things into perspective in a very good way because if you're here talking to me about how you're committed to helping 45 million people, children, young people, come away from child slave labor, I don't think that many people could compete with that. So our problems probably aren't anywhere as big and our challenges aren't anywhere as big. You're a truly inspirational character. I love spending every minute I do with you. And I just want to say a big, big thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Spencer. I really enjoyed it. Thanks.
So there you have it, my interview with someone who I now get the chance to call my good friend, Raza Jaffa. I really hope you enjoyed it and it was worth the time. You learned a lot more about Raza's story, what he's passionate about and what he's trying to do to change the world. I really, I really can't express in enough words, maybe my vocabulary just isn't good enough to try and describe how moved I am by what he's trying to do. You know, 45 million children involved in child slave labor every day of the year that we know about, the belief that there may be even twice as many as that, the work that he's doing. You know, literally, as, as, I'm, re- as I'm recording this right now for you, he invited me to come to the Vatican with him to meet the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury and talk about um, what was happening and what they were going to do about it. And you know, when you got somebody that says to you uh, after the interview, why don't you come to the Vatican with me next week? <laughs> it's like, oh, right, OK, fair enough. Um, he really he really is a, a just a, a very, very, very special person. And I think you, without me having to explain everything that I learned in it, I'm, I'm sure that you can take away what you take away from that. And if you're interested in getting involved in the Global Sustainability Network or the Capital Social Club that we get together at every week to make plans, build strategies out to help these children get away from child slave labor, um, uh, then please, please reach out and let us know. Raza uh, is a man on a mission, and I mean on a mission, and the people that he surrounds himself with, again, a plethora of enormously successful people that dedicate their time and energy to try and stop the injustices that are happening in the world. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you got any feedback, as I mentioned, email me at uh, sl at make-it-happen.com, or you can message me on Instagram at spencer.lodge, or via Facebook at the Spencer Lodge official page. Drop me a note, you know, let me know what you think, let me know who you'd like me to interview, let me know what you what you value from that interview as well, and uh, and what your takeaways were yourself. And if you're feeling extra generous, do me a massive favor because it really matters enormously to me. Okay, leave me a five-star review on the comments at SoundCloud or anywhere you see this podcast. It would really help to get the podcast out there to more listeners. I look forward to sharing more with you on the next episode. But until then, thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you again on the next episode of the Spencer Lodge podcast.